Hello and welcome back to Equity, a podcast about the business of startups where we unpack the numbers and the nuance behind the headlines. My name is Alex and today is June 9th, 2023 and joining me as always is my bestie, senior tech entry reporter on the FinTech Beat. It's Marianne Azevedo. Hey Marianne, how are you? I'm great, Alex. How are you? Well, I'm under attack by Canada and that's been tough. I've had to keep all the dogs inside so they don't oh. choke out on ash. Yeah, it's bad. Still, it's still bad. It's less bad. I mean, I think New York and kind of the D.C. area here in the States have it worse. But yesterday was brutal. The day before was brutal. I can't take the baby out on walks. so I'm not getting exercise. Basically, we're all going stir crazy. It feels surreal. Like, just doesn't even seem real. Marianne, I left the Bay Area. I thought I'd gotten away from the wildfire problem. It has come to me. It's unbelievable. Unacceptable. Climate change turns out not so good. But what is good is today's equity. We are going to start up top with a WWDC update and then deals of the week. We have a firm partnering up with Amazon. What's going on there? And then Kava's very sensible IPO, which is my excuse to say the word hummus on the program. Then we are going to bring in Jackie Melanick from TechCrunch Plus and the Chain Reaction Podcast to talk us through the SEC's major week with crypto exchanges, then Sequoia's split, moving China away from its U.S. operations, and then we're going to close with how real estate is a key player in the climate crisis, or at least maybe how to fix it. Uh, but Marianne, up top, I know you're a gadget hound and you buy all the new stuff when it comes out. So what for you was the leading takeaway from Apple's Worldwide Developer Conference infomercial keynote thingy on Tuesday? Well, I think like a lot of people, I was very curious to hear about the new headset, which, you know, there was so much hype around it. It's like this long awaited headset from Apple. I think it looks very cool. However, mm-hmm. I was shocked at the price tag. Yeah. I was like, I'm going to buy one. I'm going to buy one. I'm going to buy one. Oh, it's that much. I probably won't get permission to buy one. Probably not. And I brought it up to my spouse who runs all the money for our relationship. And I was like, it's $3,500. And she goes, oh, no, absolutely not. And I'm like, and I need to buy inserts for my glasses. It'll be more like 4K before taxes. And she was just like, you're funny. You're a very funny man. I was actually, I was surprised because I think Apple's done a pretty good job over the years of building like, you know, really good, innovative neat, cool products that people want. They're willing to pay a premium for, but I feel like they missed the mark here. This is like too much of a premium. This is not accessible for a a large portion of the population. And I feel like if they want it to be successful, they're going to have to bring this down to earth a little bit. That's why I think it's called the Vision Pro versus the Vision Affordable. I think that's going to come <laughs> later on. But there was quite a lot else. WWDC, if you didn't catch up on all of TechCrunch's coverage, there was tons of software updates. Apple has an OS for every form factor. Lots going on there. New laptops, including a 15-inch MacBook Air that I covet, that I covet, that I want so much. A new chip, new desktops, and of course, the Vision Pro. So quite a lot going on there. We had a busy day. If you haven't caught up, do so. But this is not a hardware show, Marianne. So let's talk about some money. And because you're up first, it's definitely all about fintech and apparently Amazon. What's going on? Yeah. So this week I wrote about a firm and a new partnership with Amazon Pay. So let's be clear for those of you who are not familiar, this is not the first time that a firm has partnered with Amazon. They actually signed their initial partnership back in August of 2021. And it was actually an exclusive deal, which was great for a firm, right? So like if you go to Amazon and you check out and you want to use this option to pay in installments or what we now know as buy now, pay later, you could do so through a firm. That exclusive agreement did end in January. So, you know, a firm's still offering its buy now, pay later. There's just not necessarily going to be the exclusive one over time. 
But anyway, the big news this week is now Affirm is partnering with Amazon Pay. So if you're at a if you're buying something online, for example, at a, a retailer or merchant, and they offer the Amazon Pay option, in yes. the past you would click the button, you would be taken to like all your information, so you don't have to re-enter your credit card, your address, email address, all that good stuff. Now the difference is you also have the option to pay in installments with the buy now, pay later through a firm's technology. Now, one thing to note, though, the retailers have the option to turn that on or not. So not necessarily every merchant that offers Amazon pay will have that buy now, pay later option. Okay, so this is not as big a deal as I thought. It matters because Amazon's teaming up with an existing BNPL provider, one of the incumbents, Affirm and Public, a couple of years ago, as we all know, and it's not going with one of the startup options. But because this is an integration into Amazon pay, it, 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 I'm trying to decide how much this is going to help a firm, which has seen its value erode and its business kind of come under pressure in the last couple of quarters. So I know Amazon's so big, Marianne, everything about them seems to be a big deal, but is this really going to boost a firm? I don't know. The stock today was actually up about 5%, I believe. It's up 12 now. I just checked. Yeah. So, I mean, something tells me that may not be coincidence because it's oh, no. an this announcement came out yesterday. So I feel like it can't be anything but positive, at least for now. It's only going to help a firm in terms of revenue. I don't see it hurting the company. Oh, no, certainly not. But I mean, I've been tracking Klarna's, uh, another BNPL provider based out of Sweden, their financial results. They're still a private unicorn and they've been showing some pretty solid progress towards profitability and keeping growth coming even as e-commerce kind of contracts. And so to me, this almost feels like a firm firing back, trying to reestablish dominance in the U.S. market where Klarna's seen a lot of growth. So a very interesting race to keep watching. But Marianne, it's not the only public company we care about because Cava, your favorite, is going public. <laughs> yes, indeed. We, we chatted about this briefly last week. And this week they set the initial IPO price range, right? Yes, 17 to $19 per share. They're going to sell 14.4 million total shares. That could rise to 16.6 million if the underwriters purchase their option. We'll get more into what that means when there's more IPOs than just one. But in the meantime, the company will raise a couple of hundred million dollars in its IPO if all goes well. And roughly at about $2 billion valuation at the midpoint there. So our estimates ahead of this were pretty much dead on. I'm going to get myself two backpats. As you should, as you should. Thank you. And also, I just think this is a reasonably priced IPO for a company that has shown growth and operating leverage. And I'm just hoping that it does well enough to show people that you can take companies public and not get massacred and that other companies will follow suit and I will have more S1s to read. Like, I know this is selfish, but I'm selfish. And so I'm hoping it does well. <laughs> well, I mean, I think I think we all need this, right? We need this to do well. Everybody, startups, us, everyone. Kava especially, smart of them to price this at a very reasonable range. It's brave that they're even doing it. They're yeah. not going overboard. They're not trying to like go crazy with it. I'm impressed how dead on close you were to that valuation. So again, this is going to be very interesting to watch and see how it plays out. It won't recycle that much capital because a lot of the money that went into this company across rounds wasn't from traditional venture capital. There was some, but it was also some family offices, some private equity shops. So it's kind of a mix of capital that's backed this company. But it is a venture-backed unicorn going public. It just appears to be a restaurant group going public, but we get to pretend to be care about it because of all that. So Kava, when it does price, we'll bring you more about that. And of course, when it begins to trade, we'll talk about what that means for your friendly local unicorn. We have to wrap up deals of the week now, but right after the break, we're going to talk about the SEC's lawsuits in the crypto world with our own Jackie Melanick. And then we're going to talk about Sequoia leaving China and how real estate will help us face the climate crisis. 
All right. Now, if you were asleep all week, you may have missed out on the fireworks coming down from the U.S. federal government. But if you were a crypto exchange, I guarantee you did not miss them because they're aimed right at your face. Jackie, thanks for coming back on the show. One, how are you holding up after this news deluge? (laughs) I like the description you gave, Alex. I'm holding up fine. I think there should be like a universal tip jar for crypto reporters, though, because I think we're hurting this week. <laughs> it's been a yeah. long week. <laughs> you've had, you've done so much excellent reporting, Jackie. We're just impressed. And then just new stuff coming out left and right. Yeah. Thank you. It started off with the Binance suit. And um, mm-hmm. why don't you tell us just a quick couple notes about that so we can put it into context for the Coinbase suit that came next. Yeah. So if we dial back to Monday, pre-Coinbase news, the SEC accused Binance, which is the world's largest crypto exchange its CEO and BAM trading and BAM management, which are basically, we'll get into that, but kind of entities of Binance of lying to regulators about its operations, among other charges. They had 13 total charges against Binance. And the other ones included misleading investors about Binance's systems to detect and control manipulative trading. Regulators also said that the exchange didn't take proper steps to restrict U.S.-based investors from accessing its platform because they have Binance, which is a global crypto exchange. But then there's Binance U.S., which they've always claimed is separate. They're not related. They just happen to have the same names. And everyone in the crypto industry just kind of rolls their eyes at that. Because, you know, that's ridiculous. (laughs) So that was another thing. And then they also alleged that the cryptocurrency BNB, which is Binance's cryptocurrency, and its stablecoin BUSD are securities, which is pretty juicy. And then they also said 10 other cryptocurrencies were too. They threw that in the filing for fun. I have a question here. Like how, what criteria are they using to determine What's a security and what isn't? Like, is this just some arbitrary decision? Hold on, hold on. Marianne, can I put that question on a platter just so (laughs) it's easier for Jackie to pick up and run with? Yeah, literally, that is like the argument of the crypto community. They are infuriated by this. But in the filing, both the Binance one and we'll get to the Coinbase one as well, they basically say X is a security because it's an investment. Like they repeat it over and over and over. They say the same with the staking programs, which is basically like when you put your cryptocurrency in and hold it for a certain amount of time and then you get a yield. And that's their argument. If it's an investment vehicle, then it's a security. So, well, I mean, if you put your money in and then you get it back later with a certain return, it sounds like a bond, which is, you know, a regulated entity. (laughs) Um, But the, the Binance thing, Jackie, if I can summarize, was a combination of fraudulent activities and securities rules violations. So it was it was at once a securities issue and also a, a kind of a crypto corporate mess, not dissimilar from FTX, but seems to be less theft involved. Yeah. And it also comes a few months after the CFTC filed a lawsuit against Binance and CZ, the CEO of Binance, for allegedly evading U.S. rules by offering unregistered futures and option contracts to American traders. So the two of them came through with very similar suits, I can call it. (laughs) And and there were some pretty amazing quotes in there. I get to say the F word on the show because it's a quote, (laughs) but there was at some point in time, a a Binance person said like, we're running an unregistered securities business in the U.S., bro. Or, oh shit, what was the quote, yeah. Jackie? Help me out. It was like, we're fucking running an unregistered securities exchange in the US, bro. And that was the former COO of Binance <laughs> who said that. 
And of and course they had the receipts and they threw that in the lawsuit. <laughs> simply the best thing I've ever read in a securities related suit. Just fantastic. Okay. So that's Binance. That's and Binance. we were like, whoo, yeah. that was a lot. And then mm-hmm. we wake up Tuesday and right back to the rodeo. Yeah. So, you know, we were all writing about Binance on Monday, super busy. And then Tuesday morning, I get a text from Alex. He's like, hey, by the way, (laughs) like Coinbase is also getting sued by the SEC. It was before I logged on, to be fair. So or or I would have known. I would have known. I was not late to work. You were you were actually working out. Let's be honest. You were doing something healthy with your life. Yeah. And of course, I just had to stop what I was doing. But on Tuesday, Coinbase was sued by the SEC as well, but it was completely separate. I want to make that clear. But at the same time, the Binance and the Coinbase lawsuits were both about having unregistered security law violations. However, the Coinbase one was a little more friendly. It did not address the CEO at all. It didn't address other entities And me and Alex kind of talked about this, but we felt like that one was more just about Coinbase being a quote unquote unregistered securities exchange broker and clearing agency in the SEC's words. Like what I'm confused about is Coinbase has been around for a long time. We're talking over a decade. Why now? Oh, Mariette, I'm so glad you asked that because that was like the major question. And the SEC chair, Gary Gensler, actually kind of got asked that, too. He went on TV and talked about it. And he was basically like, these things take time. And he's like, we have brought a number of actions against the crypto community in the past. And we, quote, stand ready to continue to work with the industry. And a lot of people are unhappy with this. They think it's BS because Coinbase IPO'd a few years ago. They mentioned staking in their filing plenty of times. They reached out to the SEC 30 times last year. Yada, yada, yada. It's wow. a whole 30 ordeal. Times. Wow. But, but, but if the mafia reaches out to the police station 30 times asking for okay, how they can well, make their, their business legal. And, Coinbase uh, the is police... not the mafia. Okay. It's an extreme example. But yeah. I mean, like, like the, the vibe that I'm getting here is Coinbase wants extra points for trying to go and find some way to make its existing business fit in the rules or registered under the rules. And they're like, you're breaking the rules. You can't do that. So I'm, I have a slightly more sympathy for the SEC than I think most folks do on Twitter. But I do agree that it's very different between the two companies. Binance is a hot mess on stilts. Coinbase, on the other hand, is a mature company with a perspective on the regulatory climate that is now going to court with the SEC. And we will see who wins. I Frankly, I don't know. And I don't want to guess even because I'm sure whatever I guess will be wrong. But a very different tenor, a very different structure. And I think this is going to lead to clarity one way or the other, Jackie. And I was just reading your interview with Coinbase's legal officer. And can you tell us about the possibility of Congress doing something here that might change the dynamic? Yeah. So I spoke with Paul Grewal, the chief legal officer at Coinbase, as you mentioned, and he thinks the odds are higher now that Congress actually does legislation than they might have otherwise been prior to this week because... Of everything that's going on. He said Congress is really receptive. He testified there earlier this week. And we also saw the president of Polygon, Ryan Wyatt, testify before a hearing as well. And I think what these people want, honestly, is just to one, help Congress understand because this isn't their priority. They have a million other industries to regulate and create laws for. And two, also kind of guide the ship and hopefully create clarity that the industry has been begging for. 
Well, as long as the clarity they receive is not, you guys were all breaking the law and you're going to pay massive fines now to change your business. Right. Which does appear to be, <laughs> as far as I can tell, the Gensler perspective. I'm just, I'm really torn about this because on one hand, I do want regulations to allow for creativity. And I do think Coinbase as a company in its own right, and also most especially inside of its industry has shown a lot of maturity. I like the way they share a lot of their data and their earnings reports, for example, going through like even like their trading breakdown on a per asset basis. I want to applaud that level of transparency. But also, like, if the laws here are super clear and they're just breaking them, I I struggled to be like, oh, no, you know, poor Coinbase when they've done so well historically. Coinbase also knew this was coming because they got issued a Wells notice a few months ago. So they've been preparing for this. They've been in, in and out of court cases in the past. They have the legal team, as does Binance, to fight for this. I think the Mm -hmm. problem here is like the chilling effect that could happen to smaller companies that might not have the funds or resources to actually, you know, save themselves if it comes for them too. But is that going to happen though? Okay. The craziest thing about all this is that when this happened, I thought that Coinbase was going to get halved. I thought the value of crypto tokens that are, you know, majors and ones that are mentioned were going to get absolutely decimated. But Jackie, you wrote that actually crypto kind of shrugged it off. (laughs) Yeah, it was actually kind of hilarious because on Tuesday, the markets went down a little and then they just went back up. And it was almost like a F you to the SEC from crypto market players. And they were like, we don't care. Actually, we're going to invest more. And so since then, yeah, the crypto markets have rebounded, but now they're kind of like seemingly unaffected. I think they're down like 1%, which is like nothing in the crypto world. Yeah, I think that's interesting. I think I think people aren't shocked. Like we all sort of saw that something like this was coming. So probably Coinbase, I mean, they're not stupid. They probably too expected that something like this might be coming and, and are prepared to deal with it. So I mean, I know this could have some potentially large implications for the industry, but at the at the same time, I feel like we all knew that it was something like this was coming. Yeah. The thing, though, about Coinbase, and I know we need to move on, but like I just pulled up the stock chart. The company was trading for around 33, 34 bucks a share at the start of the year. Even after all of this came out, it's worth 53.64 as I, as I record this with you guys. So it's still up quite a bit, like even with this, this new weight across its neck. So there does appear to be enthusiasm for the industry's continued existence in the US as it used to. And also that Coinbase is going to be okay. So I think we're going to learn a lot and I'm, and I'm here for it. Yeah, I also feel like the sentiment around Coinbase has changed a lot. Like last year, people used to like make jokes about them when they launched their NFT marketplace and they were trying to be like relevant in the crypto industry. And now it's like they're like the big brother that everyone's like, save us. You know, like they use Coinbase as like a shield. They literally have a shield emoji now that they like tweet across and it's like stand with crypto and it's like a Coinbase thing. So it's kind of interesting to see their like recovery arc form. Well, I think we said earlier that they were a very mature player in an industry that has a diverse number of diverse type number of actors out there. And I so I think that when you have to go before Congress and regulators, you want to have the person that owns the suit go do the work. And Coinbase has many people like that. Mm -hmm. So we'll see. Jackie, thank you so much for coming on. We will bring you back on, I'm sure, in a couple of weeks when the next big thing explodes and we need your expertise to help explain it. Before you go, though, what's your podcast? What's your newsletter? And Where can people find you on TechCrunch? Yeah, thanks for having me. So my podcast and newsletter is called Chain Reaction. If you Google it, it'll come up with my name. You can follow me on Twitter at J-A-C-Q, Jack Melanick, M-E-L-I-N-E-K. And the newsletter comes out every Thursday and we have podcasts every other Thursday. But this week we have a bonus episode with the person from Coinbase that we mentioned earlier. So go check it out. Go check out Chain Reaction. It's fantastic. Jackie, thank you much. And I'll see you on Slack when we're done with this. Thanks for having me. Thank you. 
All right, Marianne, transitioning back to our usual fare, we have all things going on with Sequoia. And, you know, Sequoia to me is one of the, the most venerable and most famous venture capital firms out there just because of its historical investing success. And then this week, we learned that the company is actually going to be splitting itself into three parts, one part for its US and European operations, one part for India and Southeast Asia, and then one part for China. Before we get into the, the whys, I'm curious, what was your initial reaction to this honestly tectonic news? in the uh, global venture capital scene? My first thought was, it feels like Sequoia has been doing a lot of distancing itself over the past year or so in one form or, or another. We had the whole FTX debacle. Now this. It's a little rough. They also put money into Twitter, which I think we've seen from different mutual fund reports is not exactly retaining all of its value. Bumps in the road for a, an org as big as Sequoia that has so much capital under management. The question that I have is, does this mean that Sequoia is now going to be essentially competing with its former siblings, if you will, or former twins or clones in different markets? Or if it's going to be able to focus just kind of back on the US and Europe, the Sequoia US arm that's going to remain, I mean, and end up not rubbing up too much against its erstwhile family and now distant friends? I'm not sure. I know in India, for example, there were, I think, at least three of its portfolio startups that had some fraud allegations, Yeah, which isn't great. And then China, of course, you know, there's been a lot going on in China with the Biden administration working on programs to restrict the flow of U.S. dollars into the country. And Sequoia has played a big part in fueling that country's consumer Internet sector over the past 20 years or so. Right. So absolutely. I don't know. It, it doesn't feel like a great thing for the firm, but maybe also at the same time, it is a smart move. Like yeah. it doesn't seem like it's, it's reasons for doing it are great, but like maybe the move itself was a, is a good one, a good strategy. I think it's a good move. I have a more bullish take on this than I think most people had initially, just because it does not look great to see a major firm split into three parts. You wonder why. But here's the thing. If you're a Sequoia in the United States, you probably have a lot of confidence in your ability to find the next generation of winners and invest in them. That's historically what Sequoia has done. And you can go look up their track record if you want. Do you want to deal with the headaches that are going on in, in major authoritarian markets? I mean, investing in China is not simple. I mean, just to pick one reason out of many, the Chinese government is tightening what information companies can share with external investors, trying to retain that information and control of it inside of China. So if you're going to be investing in that country, it's going to be increasingly tough if you're a, you know, at least partially U.S. headquartered entity. And if you're the U.S. part of Sequoia and your friends in Sequoia, China are investing in things that the U.S. government's peevish with, it's going to be hard to get in front of Congress and, and you know, do stuff that you might want to do. Absolutely. So, and also India's venture capital market has contracted dramatically in the last 18 months. So maybe you retreat back to what you were good at originally. Yeah. I mean, we've seen obviously a huge drop in interest in China overall, right? I mean, remember back in our Crunchbase news days, five years ago or so, I mean, so much money was flowing into the country from venture capitalists. Obviously, that slowed down quite a lot. Things have changed. Yeah. But Sequoia Capital China put together this massive, you know, $9 billion fund last July. That's not the number we used to hear associated with venture capital funds. I mean, do you remember when Andreessen Horowitz put together their first billion dollar fund and everyone was like, that's a terrible idea. How are you going to have a venture return on that amount of money? Well, turns out, you, I guess you can, but that's so much capital for just the Chinese market. And I looked at recent Crunchbase data, actually, to once again, cite our former employers. And the investment cadence in the Sequoia Capital China Group has decelerated dramatically in the last couple of quarters. So they're probably trying to find the right places to put the money to work, whereas the US is pretty open and I can see it. Yeah, I think so. And I wonder if we're not going to see other similar moves on the part of other VC firms. 
Well, think about how many firms that are U.S. domiciled, at least historically, that have a massive presence in China. It's not that many. GGV, clearly. But yeah, I think this does fit relatively neatly into the trend of economic decoupling between the U.S. and China. And there was a great quote, the Financial Times, from a quote, one executive at a Silicon Valley fund. (laughs) They, They said that, They thought that the move to kind of cut off India from Sequoia's U.S. and European operations was kind of collateral damage to the China decision, which is interesting because India is now the world's most populous nation Mm -hmm. and is digitizing rapidly. And China is the second largest and has a huge Internet economy. So you might think they're giving up. But, you know, with rising authoritarianism in India and the Chinese government being what it is, frankly, I kind of get staying closer to freer markets. Yeah, I get it, too. Got to do what you got to do. And uh, you know where we're not doing what we got to do is in the world of climate change, because as it turns out, everything is currently on fire, which is where we started the show. And I forgot we were going to end up here. But here we are. Our dear friend Haya was writing about real estate and the climate crisis. And Marianne, this piece blew my mind. I did not realize how polluting construction was. Yeah, I mean, it definitely is. And a lot of prop tech players over the past few years have claimed that they're working hard to reduce the impact on the environment in terms of the construction process, doing things like like we're seeing a lot more still prefab, even though Katera failed miserably, we're still seeing a number of, of modular home builders, for example, and they're saying their argument is, okay, we can build this stuff off site, we can do it in a factory, and we can do it in a way that's that's not as bad for the environment. So there, there's a lot of claims out there. His article was really interesting. It was focused more on the commercial real estate market, which has taken a massive hit, right? Since the pandemic in San Francisco alone, I think I read recently that it was maybe like 30% of office space was was vacant, which is a, a huge number. I used to cover commercial real estate in the Bay Area. And that when the vacancies were in the very low single digits, this is crazy. One of the arguments people have said is, okay, we've got to repurpose this real estate. That will help reduce the impact on the environment when when we can actually use the existing buildings for something else so that you're not having to build more buildings for other things. There's difficulties to that, though, that I've recently learned more about, which is that office buildings don't have, for example, the right amount of light throughout them that you would expect to have in, in apartments, for example. And so it's it's not as simple as I thought, but the idea of creating... I mean, let's just call them innovative ways to live downtown, because these buildings are often right in the middle of urban centers where people often want to live. So that makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, it would make a lot of sense, right? We would think so, considering that there's this, you know, affordable housing shortage and crisis, and especially in markets like the Bay Area. So you would think that would be the logical thing to do is convert some of this empty office space into like apartments, condos. But yeah, there's a lot of a lot of bureaucracy, a lot of a lot of red tape that would go that you would have to go through to make that happen. You know, there's zoning laws and and having to get permits and a lot of landlords. They're they're very often different. Like commercial real estate landlords who buy up office space aren't necessarily wanting to get into multifamily or condos, for example. So other things we're seeing is the office space being converted to other things like storage. There's a startup called Neighbor that a couple of years back I've written about first, they were like partnering just people like neighbors. That's why they call themselves neighbors. Like, okay, I've got an empty driveway. You can park your boat there and just pay me a certain (laughs) amount of money every month. Very interesting concept. They seem to be doing pretty well though, doing different things like just renting out portions of your home for storage. But a couple of years back, they started getting into uh, the commercial world. And so like they they're using now, they're kind of converting commercial space into storage and doing things like giving people a place to park. 
all sorts of things from boats to other fleets, things like that. It's a, it's a fascinating concept, but one that fits nicely into this because they do say that their mission in part is to help reduce the carbon footprint by just reutilizing existing space rather than having other people build more space when we already have stuff that could be repurposed. Yes. And, and that's where two data points really hit me. So first from the, the highest story, which we'll link in the show notes, is that the International Energy Agency, or IEA, you might know it as, estimates that real estate is responsible for around 38% of total global carbon dioxide and 36% of total global energy consumption. So that's like the, the top line numbers. That's what we're emitting and using to do this. And then on the other hand, in Europe, 76% of office stock will be at the risk of obsolescence in the coming years. Wow. So if you combine the two, let's maybe not just make new stuff, but instead find that way to repurpose if it's neighbor's method or my vision of lots of little micro apartments in downtown San Francisco. It's just, it blows my mind how fast we got here because at Crunchbase, we were trying to find back when we were both there, more space for more people. Like we were right. like waiting for people to leave half of a floor so we could grab that maybe ahead of time so we could so fit more people. Different now. Wow. Yeah. I mean, how many companies got stuck with leases. I feel so much for the companies that had just signed leases like right before the pandemic hit and they were stuck with all this office space that they they couldn't even use paying exorbitant. Yes, like outrageous amounts of rent. So it is, it is crazy. It is just nuts and nobody would have ever expected it. Well, I mean, you know, here's an enormous problem. There's a variety of needs and it would be great to see more startups trying to sit between the two and to create neat ways to approach this model because there will be a forcing function, I think, for these landlords you were correctly describing as being very different than residential landlords. And I think the market reality will be when suddenly they are sitting on properties that have a tax base and no current renters and they're paying to keep them you know, lit. And then maybe that will lead to some deal making, if you will. Right. Let's hope so. Yeah, I'm optimistic about it. Everybody, a couple of quick notes before we let you go. The first is that equity is going on vacation next week. We're taking the week off. We're all going to sit down and breathe and recollect ourselves. And I'm going to order a new mic and it's going to be an absolute blast. So we're not going to be around next week, but we are back the following Monday. And in the meantime, of course, people like Jackie are recording Chain Reaction. We also have an amazing podcast called Found, which is all about founder stories with Dominic Midori Davis and Rebecca Skutak and also TechCrunch Pod. If you want to know what we do here at TC, that's our place where we talk about that. So lots to listen to next week. Just not Marianne and I. We will be right back afterwards, though. So don't fret. The show is going absolutely nowhere. And then Marianne, we also have a listener survey. What's going on there? Yes, please. We want to hear from you. We want to know what you love about the show, what you don't like about the show, what you want more of or less of. We just want feedback from you. So head to bit.ly forward slash equity pod survey. That's all one word, bit.ly slash equity pod survey. And it's capital E for equity, capital P for pod and capital S for survey. If you don't put those in caps, you will go to a dead URL and then we will be sad because you can't hear your lovely input. I think that's all of our, our announcements. I think we can go away, Marianne. I'm going to, you know, make a fruity beverage, put an umbrella in it and uh, not talk in a recorded fashion for like nine days. I can't wait. Yeah, we'll, we'll miss everyone. But hey, it'll be great to see you back in about 10 days. We'll see you then. Bye. Bye. Equity is hosted by myself, Editor-in-Chief of TechCrunch Plus, Alex Wilhelm, and TechCrunch Senior Reporter, Mary Ann Azevedo. We are produced by Teresa Loconsolo with editing by Kel. Bryce Durbin is our illustrator. And a big thank you to the audience development team and Henry Picavet, who manages TechCrunch Audio Products. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.